0: Today is the 24th of January, 2017. I'm Catherine Arget Singer, And the Dharma talk tonight, I hope, is going to be a little less of a Dharma talk and more of a Dharma discussion. Um, so discussion will come at the, at the end, I, and we'll break into groups, which I understand we've been doing here some of the time. But uh, since that's the way we're headed, um, I'd just like to ask people please feel free to angle yourself towards me and look up and um, sometimes it's a little disconcerting to look out with everybody with their eyes down. So uh, (laughs) feel free to to look at me and um, respond if you wish to. So what I plan to do is um, just read a couple of selections from a, a book and then I have some questions that I'm hoping that we can look at together in in small groups and the book is called Nothing Special and it's by the contemporary Zen teacher Joko Beck. Um, She's actually she died in 2011 at the age of 94 but uh, she was a teacher in San Diego, California and this was a book that I first read probably about 10 years ago, 8 or 10 years ago And it really had a big impact on me at that time. And I read parts of it again and again, and really had a lot of influence on on my my thinking and on my practice at that time. And the reason that I thought of it for this week was because a friend of mine read it recently. And um, she said to me, oh, I hated that book. And I thought about it. You know, I would have said I loved the book. But when I thought back to it, I thought, yeah, I can really see that. I can really see why you would hate that book. It's um and I don't know if I loved it or if I hated it, you know, I think it's it it's really dealing with some difficult stuff and, and writing about some things that maybe aren't so easy easy to hear. And I think at the the time I read it I was probably depressed in some ways and so I don't know if it was a good thing or not. <laughs> but um but I think that the things she's saying are really important. Uh, whether, you, whether you hate it or you love it, I think there are things that we have to, to take a look at. So that's what I'm hoping uh, to do tonight. So my impression is that Joko Beck must have been quite a remarkable Zen teacher. One place that I read about her was in a book called Meetings with Remarkable Women, a book that I came across several years ago. And it was interviews with various contemporary Buddhist teachers. And she really did sound like she was a remarkable woman. She began her Zen practice in her 40s with Mizumi Roshi in Los Angeles. He was one of the teachers that came from Japan and uh, brought Zen to the United States. And later she studied with Yasutani Roshi, who was Roshi Kaplo's teacher, and also with Soa Nakagawa. She received Dharma transmission from Mizumi Roshi in 1978. But she broke with Maizumi um, over his actions when it came out that he was sleeping with some of his students. And she was very uh, definite about this. Many people stayed with him, uh, excused it in various ways. But after that, she would never say that she was his Dharma heir. And when you look at the lineages of teachers, it always says in parentheses after Joko Beck's name, it says, gone independent. So. She broke with him and she started her her own center in San Diego in 1983 and taught there until 2006. And the school of Zen that she founded was called The Ordinary Mind Zen School. And this book that I'm reading from tonight is called Nothing Special. And the other book that she wrote is entitled Everyday Zen. So I think you can see from those titles um, quite a bit about her teaching and what her focus was on. From descriptions in the book of, of the way she taught and um, the sasheen that she gave, I get the impression that she was quite a rigorous teacher, that she demanded a lot from her students in terms of the style of sitting practice that she taught and the sasheen that she gave. But she always maintained this really strong focus on how do we integrate the practice into everyday life. And that that's really what she was looking for Um, in her own work and in the work of her students. She always said that the practice was not about some special experience that you might have on the mat. She said, if that happens, it's nice. But what's really important is what's going on in your everyday life. Are are you manifesting the fruits of your practice in your everyday life? In other words, um, how are your relationships with other people going? How's your work going? How is your relationships with your work colleagues going? Um, are you contented with your relationships with your work? And accepting of the challenges and obstacles that everybody inevitably faces in life. So those are the things that she really emphasized a lot. And this book, Nothing Special, is divided into short sections. They're, they're actually little... There are as long as Dharma talks, maybe encouragement talks or presentations that she gave in her zendo that that were written up. And so I'm just going to read two of them tonight. And then, um, as I said, um, present some questions on them, and then we'll we'll go into, into groups. So the first one that I'm going to read is called, excuse me, is called The Promise That Is Never Kept. And she says, our human trouble arises from desire. Not all desires generate problems, however. There are two kinds of desires. Demands, I have to have it, and preferences. Preferences are harmless. We can have as many as we want. Desire that demands to be satisfied is the problem. When I read that, um, it made me think of a story that I've heard many times about a Japanese teacher who visited Rochester in the very early days of the Rochester Center. And um, the story is told that they took him out to Baskin Robbins' ice cream shop, which was famous at that time for having 32 flavors. And um, that was you know, unique back in those days. So you could choose from 32 flavors. And so they, they took this, this um, teacher to this shop, and they said, you know, you got 32 flavors which one do you want you know and he just you know looked up and said i'll have peanut butter ripple, or whatever flavor he's he just saw first on the board you know and they they told that story and it just was showing how surely he probably had preferences he may have liked some of the flavors better than the others but he had no concern about whether his preferences were going to be met or not he just whatever flavor came that was okay so i always enjoyed that story but what Djokovic says here um, is, desire that demands to be satisfied is the problem. It's as if we feel constantly thirsty, and to quench our thirst, we try to attach a hose to a faucet in the wall of life. We keep thinking that from this or that faucet, we will get the water we demand. We may get a bit of water here and there, but it only tantalizes us. Being really thirsty is not fun. What are some of the faucets we try to attach ourselves to in order to quench our thirst? One might be a job we feel that we must have. Another might be the right partner or a child who behaves as he or she should. Fixing a personal relationship may seem to be the way to get that drink. Many of us also believe that we will finally quench our thirst if we can only fix ourselves. It makes no sense for the self to fix the self, but we persist in trying to do it. What we regard as ourselves is never quite acceptable to us. Bookstores are full of self-help books proclaiming various remedies, how to make your husband love you, how to build self-esteem, and so on. Whether or not we seem to be self-assured, underneath we, it, underneath it all we feel we all feel that there is something lacking. We feel we have to fix our life, to quench our thirst. We've got to get that connection, to hook up our hose to the faucet and draw that water to drink. The problem is that nothing actually works. We begin to discover that the promise we hold out to ourselves that somehow, somewhere our thirst will be quenched is never kept. I don't mean that we never enjoy life. Much in life can be greatly enjoyed, certain relationships, certain work, certain activities. But what we want is something absolute. We want to quench our thirst permanently so that we have all the water we want all the time. That promise of complete satisfaction is never kept. It can't be kept. I remember um, hearing uh, when I taught at the uh, University of Rochester in the religion department there, I remember hearing one of the professors talking about that that was what enlightenment was, that people sought enlightenment because if you, if you could, get, could get enlightenment, then the idea was you'd be in a bliss state and be happy all the time. And I think that we definitely come to the practice with that kind of idea that maybe this is a way to get that complete satisfaction that we are after. So she goes on. If we have been trying for years to attach our hose to this or that faucet, and each time we have discovered that it wasn't enough, there will come a moment of profound discouragement. We begin to sense that the problem is not with our failure to connect with something out there, but that nothing external can ever satisfy the thirst. This is when we are more likely to begin a serious practice. This can be an awful moment, to realize that nothing is ever gonna satisfy. A strange thing happens when we let go of all our expectations. We catch a glimpse of yet another faucet, one that has been invisible. We attach our bow to it and discover to our delight that water is gushing forth. We think, I've got it now, I've got it. And what happens? Once again, the water dries up. We have brought our demands into the practice itself and we are once again thirsty. Practice has to be a process of endless disappointment. We have to see that everything we demand and even everything we get eventually disappoints us. This discovery is our teacher. Christians call this realization the dark night of the soul. We've worn out everything we can do and we don't see what to do next, and so we suffer. Though it feels miserable at the time, that suffering is the turning point. Practice brings us to such fruitful suffering and helps us to stay with it. She says, practice brings us to the suffering and helps us to stay with it. Um, that's the ideal. It's not always the case because that's a time when sometimes people don't stay with it. But that is the important, the important time to, to stay with it and to, to just continue with the practice through those dry times, even when the water is not gushing out of the holes." When we do this at some point, the suffering begins to transform itself and the water begins to flow. In order for that to happen, however, all of our pretty dreams about life and practice have to go, including the belief that good practice, or indeed anything at all, (coughs) should make us happy. The promise that is never kept is based on belief systems, personally-centered thoughts that keep us stuck and thirsty. We have thousands of them. It's impossible to eliminate them while we don't live long enough for that. Practice does not require that we get rid of them, but simply that we see through them and recognize them as empty, as invalid. So then um, she says a few more things and then she opens it up to her students and asks them if they can identify some of the belief systems they have that sort of keep them stuck looking for a particular faucet. And um, she gives the example in terms of practice The thought, if I do this practice patiently enough, everything will be different. Okay, so that's her example of a belief system, and she asks, what are some other belief systems? And various ones that the students offer are, if I work hard, I'll make it. She says, yes, that's a good American belief system. Another student says, if I'm nice to people, they won't hurt my feelings. Joko says, yes, that's one that often disappoints us. No guarantees. Another student says, if I lived somewhere else, I would enjoy life more. Another one, if I help other people, I'm a good person. Another one, I've been sitting for so long, I shouldn't get angry anymore. So, those are some examples. And and, um, Beck says, when we discover Zen practice, we may hold out a hope that it's going to solve our problems and make our life perfect. But Zen practice simply returns us to life as it is, being our lives more and more is what Zen practice is about. Our lives are simply what they are, and Zen helps us to recognize that fact. So that's the story of the faucets. (coughs) And the second one that I want to read is called Dorothy and the Locked Door. we're all looking for something most human beings feel a kind of incompleteness and are looking for something that will fill up the hole they feel so people come to this or that church to Zen centers or yoga centers to personal growth workshops with the hope of finding the missing piece let me tell you about a little girl named Dorothy Dorothy did not live in Kansas but in San Diego that's where Joko taught she lived in San Diego in an enormous old Victorian house her family had lived there for generations. Everybody had his or her own room, and there were extra rooms and cubby everywhere, as well as an attic and a basement. When Dorothy was still a tiny girl, she learned that there was something odd about the house. Up on the top floor of that old Victorian mansion, there was a locked room. As far back as people could remember, the room had always been locked. There was a rumor that once it had been unlocked, but no one knew what was in the room. The lock on the door to the room was strange, and no one had ever been able to find a way to open it. Most of the family just got used to the room with its locked door. They knew it was there, but they didn't want to concern themselves. So it was just not mentioned. So this, what this made me think about um, what she's doing here is she's going into a parable for practice, as we'll see if we haven't seen it already. If we haven't realized that already. She's, she's giving us a parable here about practice, but this part about people knowing it was there but they just don't mention it, really made me think about the way so many people deal with death and the way our society in general tends to deal with death. And that um, sometimes it comes up for people and confronts them, but basically people conclude, well, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, Nothing we can do, so just don't think about it. Live for the moment as best you can. Enjoy life, cross that bridge when you come to it. And um, that's really one one difference with uh, taking up a Zen practice, is um, really confronting some of those fears head on. And it just seems that if, if people aren't willing to not even resolve those fears, but just, just take a close look at them, what happens is that. The fear gets buried, and it just comes out in in ways that aren't particularly healthy, both on the individual level and also, we can see it happening in society at large. But uh, that goes on. It was just not mentioned, but Dorothy, this little girl, Dorothy was different, however. From the time that she was small, she was obsessed with that room and what was in there. She felt that she had to get it unlocked. In a way, it dominated her life. Sometimes she would go up and sit in front of the room and just look at that door and wonder about it. By the way, I am um, abridging this, so there's a a bit more, but just for the record, if you wanna go back and read it, there's more more details. This is actually quite a detailed parable that she sets up here, but I'm gonna hit the high points. So, as Dorothy got a bit older, she sensed that the room had some connection with what was missing in her life. So she began various trainings and practices in the hope of finding the secret to opening the door. She tried out lots of different things. She went to this and that center and this and that teacher, searching for the formula to unlock the door. She went to workshops. She got herself rebirth. She tried hypnosis. She did everything, yet nothing unlocked the door for her. Her searching went on for years. She developed techniques to put herself into various mental states, but she was still unable to open the door. Then one day, when she came home, the house was deserted. She went upstairs to the top floor and sat in front of the locked door. Using one of her esoteric practices, she went into a deep state of meditation. On an impulse, she reached out a hand and pushed on the door, and it began to open. She was terrified. In all the long years of trying to unlock the door, nothing like this had ever happened. Dorothy was frightened and excited at the same time. Trembling, she made herself go through the door and found Disappointment and confusion. Dorothy found herself not in a strangely wonderful space, but right back on the first floor of that old Victorian house, in the midst of all the old familiar things. She had the same view. She was in the same location with the usual furniture. Everything was just as it had always been. Disappointed and puzzled at the same time, some hours later she climbed the stairs to the top floor and went to the mysterious room. The door was still locked. Dorothy had opened the door, and she hadn't opened it. Life went on. Dorothy got married. She had a couple of children. She still lived in the Victorian house with her family. The kids grew. She acquired a few gray hairs. She still spent a lot of time sitting in front of the locked door, however. She was a fairly good wife and mother, but her attention was still mostly on the locked room, and she was a persistent, diligent person. She didn't give up easily. From time to time, she had managed to open the door and move through it, she always ended up on the first floor right back where she lives gradually dorothy's obsession wore down her struggle to open that door began to get a bit old instead of spending so much time up in front of the door she spent a bit more time with her children and her grandchildren and taking care of the house getting the floors refinished redoing the drapes and so on the house wasn't in bad shape but it had been a little neglected because dorothy had been busy sitting in front of her door Her attention slowly shifted back into taking care of the everyday things that needed to be taken care of. It was a slow process. Occasionally, she would go up to the top floor and look at the door, but if she opened it, she knew what she'd find. Very slowly, discouragement and disappointment settled in. More and more, she forgot about anything except just living her life, taking care of things moment to moment. And then one day, she was up on the top floor and she happened to look over at the door that was locked. Wow! It was wide open. Inside, in plain sight, was a comfortable guest room. There was a fine bed and a dresser and all of the small items that would make a guest comfortable. Dorothy now realized that that door had never been locked in the first place. It was always open. Only her rigid pushing had kept it shut. This is our basic illusion about practice, that the door is locked. The illusion is inevitable. We all have it, to some degree. As long as we think the door is shut, it is shut to open it, we do everything. We go to this or that center, we do workshops, we try this or that, ultimately we find that the door was never shut. Yet Dorothy's life of vain effort was perfect for her. That's what she had to do. In fact, that's what we all have to do. We have to give our practice everything we have in order to realize that from the very beginning there's nothing but perfection. The room is open, the house is open, if we don't clutter it with our phantom junk. But there's no way to know this until we know it. So that's the story of Dorothy and the Locked Door. And I think that that particular story um, struck me more than any of the others in in the book when I read this book initially. And I'm not sure whether it's like a profoundly discouraging story, that there's absolutely nothing we can do or profoundly encouraging, that everything happens just as it should and will eventually take care of itself if we just trust the the process. So, Beck tells this story in in terms of a contemporary family, but really she's um, talking about the same thing that's that's raised in one of the most well-known koans, uh, Muma Khan number 19 which is the koan about ordinary mind. And remember that the um, Zen school that Beck founded, she called it the ordinary mind Zen school. And this is the koan about um, Joshu, the famous Joshu of the Mu koan and his teacher Nansen. So this is when Joshua was very young. And he asked his teacher Nansen, what is the way? And Nansen answered, ordinary mind is the way. Joshua asked, Shall I try to seek after it? Nansen answered, if you try to seek after it, you go away from it. And Joshua said, if I do not try for it, how can I know the way? So this is this this fundamental problem that's presented to us in Zen practice. And this is the same problem that that Beck is talking about in this uh, story that she gives. And I think that partly that her, her particular story um, struck me so much, not just because it's getting at this at this question that's uh, so central to practice for all of us, but also it just seemed to, the details seemed to resonate a lot with my own life. Um, I live in a big Victorian house in the United States with my family. And um, when I first read this book years ago, I was living in another place, but it was also a large Victorian house where I was living with my family, Um, and my children were young and at home at that time, and now in my current large Victorian house, I have uh, my daughter and her wife and my my granddaughter, and we all have our own rooms, you know? So it it just struck me as something that I really could identify with, and particularly because through my many years of practice, um, this sort of being pulled two ways between just taking care of the everyday things, the children, the grandchildren, the children taking care of the house, the food, so on, versus sitting in front of that door, um, always trying to discern which, which thing was more important and which thing uh, I really was being called to do. So the question is then, When do we need to accept things as they are, learn some contentment, practice in the moment, stop striving for something different, versus when do we need to make a change? This isn't just a question for practice. I think what really interests me about this story and this um, parable is that, yes, you can apply this to, to practice, but also this comes up in so many different ways in our lives. When do we really need to just accept things as they are, and when is it really time to shake things up? to strive to fix something, to really make a change. This can come up in job decisions, you know, should, no job is perfect, should we stay with the job we have, or do we really need to find a new job, a new career? Relationships, do we just keep working on the same relationship, or when is it really time that we need to leave? By the way, um, the friend of mine who said she hated this book, um, one of the reasons she gave was that she felt that um, Joe Quebec was encouraging people to do something like stay in a relationship, even if it wasn't uh, a good relationship. I'm not sure that that's true, at least certainly not in the passages that I read. But it's, it's trying, to find, trying to find that proper balance between those, those two ways of looking at a situation. Um, where we're living, if we'd be really happier somewhere else if we moved, That's a decision that a lot of people have to face. Okay, so those are some of the things that um, I'm hoping that we can talk about in, in small groups. And so um, I have these questions. And um, I'm just gonna take a couple more minutes just to, to read, read out what I have here so that people can give a little bit of thought to it. Um, on that first one about the promise that's never kept in the faucets, the questions that I have here are just to think about, what are what are your current faucets? What is it that you're convinced right now would make you happy if you only had it? I think we usually all have those. Um, can you identify some faucets that haven't worked for you? And then um, the one that takes a little more thought maybe is, can you articulate any of the belief systems that uh, underlie that? So the examples that she gave were, like, if I work hard, I'll succeed. If I'm nice to people, they won't hurt my feelings. Um, So maybe just, let's just sit for a minute so that people can think about that and um, so that you're not kind of trying to come up with something, you know, right on the spot.